Welcome to Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, the podcast dedicated to integrative health and healing from breast cancer and breast cancer treatment using the best of conventional and natural medicine. Your host, Deborah Beaumont, is an advanced practice nurse, functional medicine practitioner, and fellow breast cancer survivor. Hi, welcome to today's episode. This is Deborah. I wanted to take today's episode and I wanted to talk about something that is a pretty common experience for anyone who's going through this diagnosis and treatment. It's an issue that I think is very real for most of us and isn't really talked about a lot. As you all know, I'm an integrative practitioner. Uh, That means that I use complementary medicine as well as traditional medicine. But in an even bigger umbrella than that, I really believe that we need to talk about healing and healing from a mind-body perspective. The thing that we all need to acknowledge and face is that breast cancer, unlike other illnesses and even other forms of cancer, takes a huge toll on our self-esteem, our sense of value, our sense of well-being, our ability to be in relationship with people. Um, I think there are different stages to that. At first, it can be very isolating from the shock. But later on, I think it can become very isolating because learning how to deal with this diagnosis and all of the treatments and the ongoing fear and anxiety we all experience can be very complicated. And it really becomes complicated sometimes when we are living out our lives in relationship with other people. While many of us have wonderful and supportive networks, the truth is many of us don't. We can have a wonderful and supportive network and still engage with people who say rude and insensitive things that can be very difficult to hear and to deal with. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. And that's one of the things that I want to highlight on today's Uh, podcast is what some of those things are, in my opinion, and more importantly, some of the ways that we can take care of ourselves around these things, because there's not a rule book out there that tells us what to say or what to do or how to handle uncomfortable or painful interactions with other people. I will tell you that as someone who has gone through cancer twice, 10 years apart, I went through cervical cancer and then 10 years later went through bilateral breast cancer. My experience and how I chose to handle my diagnosis in relation to the people in my life was quite different when I went through breast cancer than it was the first time around when I didn't know any better because I sort of thought people would be understanding and responsive and there'd be a lot of compassion there. And while there was with some people, for many people, that didn't happen. Actually, at the time, I used to talk about something that I call the casserole experience, which is people who actually show up maybe the day you get diagnosed or the day you come home from the hospital, they show up in the acute phase, they bring a casserole, they give you the casserole, maybe visit with you for a few minutes, and then they're off on their merry way. And I didn't see them for, I don't know, another few months. And that was for a lot of reasons. I think at some level, people get really uncomfortable with cancer as a topic or somebody going through cancer. It really brings up all of their fears and anxieties and misconceptions and things that they believe. And at another level, I think that people are more comfortable showing up in a crisis or an acute situation, giving you a casserole and feeling like they've done something 
then they are showing up over the long term. Because this, as well as many other health crises that we experience, is a long-term process. So in reality, you don't just need the casserole when you come home. You may need the casserole six weeks later or two months later when you still need support and understanding from the people in your life. And to varying degrees, people can show up and do that. And a lot of people can't. And that's an emotional truth we all have to face. It can be a painful one. I'm not saying it's an easy one. It can be really painful to realize that your best friend isn't there for you or your sister or even your spouse. We expect people to be there for us and be there in a way that we think we're going to be there for them. And a lot of times that doesn't happen. I just really want to talk about that today. And not that I have any magic answers, but through the course of what I'm talking about, today, I'd really like to talk about some key issues that I think are related to this and hopefully prompt you to think about ways that you might be able to prepare yourself better. I'm not saying that uh, people don't show up. They do. They just show up in different ways. The reactions from people can range from wanting to be helpful and not knowing what to say because it's a very painful and uncomfortable subject to being just downright insensitive and rude. And I don't really find myself wanting to make a lot of excuses for those people. They're just people that just are rude. As a friend of mine once said, we live in a world where we want to justify people's behavior or we want to process it or we want to go into the context or whatever. Her cultural experience was different and she turned around and she said, and sometimes bad behavior is just bad behavior. I don't want to process it. And I think that that actually applies to a significant number of people. And I bring that up because sometimes we just need to get there. We don't have to make excuses and we don't have to try to understand and we don't have to do any of that. Uh, We live in a world that likes to process a lot of things, but you know, sometimes processing isn't going to get you anywhere and it's a huge waste of time and energy. And I know that's probably not a politically correct thing to say, but in my experience, it's the truth. I want to tell you uh, a couple of experiences that I had uh, the first time I had cancer when I came home from the hospital. I went into the hospital for what I thought was very straightforward medical treatment, and it turns out that I had a number of complications. And by the time I came home, I had massive wounds that I had to do dressing changes on several times a day. I went in for a hysterectomy and had numerous unforeseen crazy complications and I came home paralyzed in my left leg and I was paralyzed for two and a half years. So instead of my plan, which was to go in, have it taken care of and get back to work within a couple of weeks, I was actually homebound for the better part of two years. So this whole issue of of friends showing up and doing the casserole thing or not showing up at all, or in many ways showing up in ways that were wonderful, um, I learned a lot during that time. There's uh, three different levels of response that I want to tell you about. First was a good friend of mine. He was one of my best friends at the time. We, you know, he was somebody that I spent, you know, maybe three evenings a week with. We went to movies, we went to dinner, we talked all the time. Very good friend. Uh, I didn't really put a lot of meaning or emphasis on why I didn't see him in the hospital because actually I was so sick. It was actually kind of a relief that I didn't have to 
deal with entertaining people while I was in the hospital. But when I got home, uh, it became really clear what was happening. So I got home, as I said, I was uh, completely paralyzed in my left leg for two years. But at that time, I was walking with a walker and I was barely mobile and I lived alone. I really needed people to show up in very practical ways. I never really wanted to sit and process what was happening for me. I just sort of wanted to figure out how I was going to get through the day. I got home. It had been six weeks in the hospital. I had no groceries in the house. I had nothing. I called my friend if he would go to the store for me. He lived a couple miles from me. I didn't think that that was a huge inconvenience. Just ask him to buy me some staples and, you know, kind of help me get seated at home. And they had a meal delivery store in the community that I lived in. So that's how I planned to do groceries on the long term. But that first day home, I just needed things like coffee, cream, you know, soup, whatever uh, I needed at the time. He did go. And then when he showed up with the groceries, he turned around and said to me, you're not going to be asking for this all the time, are you? Because this is really inconvenient for me. I was stunned. I am someone who kind of shows up for my friends at any time of the day or night if they need me. So the fact that I would get such an insensitive response was stunning. And I made a declaration to myself and him at the time, I wouldn't ask him for another thing. Well, it turns out, I don't think I ever saw him again. I'm, I maybe talked to him one more time months later, but that was pretty much the end of our friendship. And that, I think, was by mutual agreement. I really didn't have any tolerance for his hysteria, and he didn't want to have to delve into anything that made him uncomfortable. We had a mutual friend who I did have lunch with several months later who said, well, he was so uncomfortable. He, he was so afraid that he couldn't really talk to you. Well, you know what? I was afraid too. And I would have been a whole lot better able to handle that and maybe a little less afraid if one of my best friends had been able to be there for me. The other situation was someone that I actually only knew socially, uh, had met a few times, was a very lovely man, and we had a mutual friend. Even when I was in the hospital, he, he lived about 40 miles away from the hospital that I was at, so he couldn't really come and visit every day. But what he did do was make a drive every Sunday afternoon and bring my favorite coffee drink, which was a mocha at the time. And he would sit in my hospital room with me and he would talk about movies and he would, uh, we'd gossip about mutual friends and we'd talk about just anything and nothing to do with cancer. And it was something I looked forward to every week. It was like the highlight of my week to have my mocha latte with my friend and just kind of shoot the shit. It was, it was my break from what was overwhelming to me at the time. And when I got home and, as I said, was homebound, he did that very same thing probably for, you know, the next two years. He came up every Sunday afternoon. We would just... We, you know, we just be friends. We didn't, it wasn't always serious or heavy conversations. And it was such a mental and emotional relief to me that, and I really depended on that as a really integral part of getting through that whole thing. And he actually became one of my best friends for many, many years. The last one I want to tell you about is a friend, a work friend who did show up once or maybe twice, who brought the casserole. Came over, it was great, you know, and uh, brought the casserole. And then went back to her life, which 
no longer was my life because the thing that we had shared in common before my diagnosis is we worked in the same place. So we had a lot of work stuff to talk about and gossip about. Well, when I wasn't in that situation anymore and I was completely somewhere else, she and I had nothing in common. So she brought the casserole and then that was it. I bring up these three scenarios because these are three very different ways of responding to the very same thing. Oh, and I want to bring up a fourth. And it was one of my friend's who disappeared. He was a good friend. Then I didn't hear from him for months on end. And I I didn't really have a lot of time to think about that because, as I said, I was kind of dealing with just getting through the day and my treatments and getting to my treatments and that kind of thing. But he called me up after about a year. He profusely apologized to me, telling me that he realized what a bad friend he had been by taking off and that he had done it because he was afraid and overwhelmed with my diagnosis of cancer. He wasn't very thoughtful about it at the time, but a year later really kind of came to some understanding how how much I needed support and he wasn't able to give it and he begged for forgiveness. To tell you the truth, I that meant more to me than anything, just the fact that he would acknowledge that what had happened wasn't my fault. And it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with him. And we're still friends to this day. We talk about that every once in a while. I feel much better able now to think about that when I deal with people, even now, about breast cancer. Because if you're listening to this and you're a breast cancer survivor, you know that it doesn't end when the treatment is over. This is an ongoing issue. It's an ongoing real life thing in our lives that we need to manage. And I am much more aware of how to take care of myself in relationship to people and the things that they say, largely because it was kind of a hard learning curve. So I tell you all of that because at the time of my first diagnosis, I pretty much told everybody. I was so freaked out. I was so anxious. I was so overwhelmed. I would talk to anybody and probably talk to a lot of people that I shouldn't have. But 10 years later, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I had already had that experience of losing friends, of of being profoundly disappointed in people and going through that hurt. And at the time that I was given the diagnosis, I knew that I couldn't go through that again. So I very consciously decided that I was not going to tell everybody. I pretty much decided that I was going to tell three people, which was my partner, my best friend, and actually my two best friends. And uh, those were the only three people that I wanted to know until I had gone through the appointments, the decision-making, the grief, the processing of that and fear of that initial diagnosis because I knew I would be so emotionally vulnerable and susceptible to everyone's opinion and the stupid and sensitive things that they could say that I didn't want to put myself through that. So I only wanted to talk to people who had a stake in the process and who I wanted to hear their opinions. And even then, that wasn't foolproof, but I made a very conscious choice to keep it very close to myself, to not deal with people's ignorance and stupidity around this because it was so frightening to me. And I'm so glad that I did that. And it wasn't foolproof. There were still things that were said that just floored me in terms of their insensitivity, but it was one way that I found to protect myself. And that's really what I want to emphasize on today's podcast. I want to read off some of the things that either were said to me or things that I hear from survivors. I call this the 10 top stupid things to say to someone who is a 
breast cancer patient and a breast cancer survivor. I don't know why people do this. I don't know if it's because of their discomfort or they just don't know what to say or what it is. But believe me, these are not even the worst things that are said. These are just really common ones that are just so hurtful and insensitive. And at first, I might give someone the benefit of the doubt and chalk it up to insensitivity. But then when it's not, in, when it keeps going, then my response isn't going to be so nice after the first time. One of the things said to me that was a, that can be said in any number of ways to someone is, oh, I could never do that. Oh, that's too difficult. My breasts are too important to me. I'd never enjoy sex. You know, whatever the reason is, it's like, yeah, you know, but the fact is, is this isn't, this isn't something that we decide out of a place of strength and optimism and health. This is usually something that is decided when we're being given overwhelming information and being told that unless we make these decisions, we die. Not particularly helpful to say, oh, I could never do that. You don't know what you're going to do until you face it. And then that decision is yours, but it doesn't have anything to do with what my decision is now. Another thing that's commonly said is, oh, you got the good kind of cancer or you got the curable kind of cancer. I don't know what that means, but I think it's self-explanatory. Another thing, and I got this uh, actually when I went back into the workplace after treatment, is having a supervisor call me aside and tell me not to talk about it because it made other people uncomfortable. And in no way was I supposed to indicate that I was going through what I was going through, which was stunning to me. It's not exactly like I wanted to go talk to everybody about it anyway, but I was going through a very real experience and I felt so isolated and alone and hurt. That was one of the main factors in how I chose to handle that job uh, for the time that I was there and left as soon as I possibly could. Another thing that just makes me crazy is when people send you the articles, the articles on uh, frozen lemons being better than chemotherapy or sodium bicarb or how you should take every chemotherapy drug there is just to make sure that you're cutting a wide path and you're doing everything and how you should just have mastectomies or you shouldn't have mastectomies, just whatever article they find on Google. Not helpful. You know, everyone's experience is different. The information that we have to deal with is very different. There's no two cancers that are alike. And the fact is, is that those are choices that need to be made as an informed choice between you, the significant people in your life, and your care providers. So, you know, Google articles, some of them may be informative, but, you know, sending stupid things like quartz crystals, you know, cure, I'm sorry, that was a little um, uh, Freudian slip, but how uh, quartz crystals will cure you uh, don't really help. Oh, and this is one of the favorite ones that I heard. At least you get a free boob job. Seriously? You think that amputating your breast is a way to get a boob job? And believe me, on another episode, we're going to go into the reality of boob jobs because it's not a boob job. It's actually a reconstruction after an amputation. I was told that by a doctor, a reconstructive doctor, and that came so much closer to my emotional reality of what this was like than getting a boob job. As a matter of fact, when I was facing whether or not the decisions I was making were ones that I was going to live or die, I really didn't care about having a boob job or the size of my boobs. Wasn't really a factor. Oh, and one of my favorites is when someone says, oh, my friend, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they had cancer and they died. How is that helpful? 
why would people say that? If anything, if you want to say anything, talk about the positives, like you know somebody who actually survived it, but why you would tell somebody going through this, oh yeah, but I know people, but they died. It just, it's, it's just dumbfounding to me how people can think to say that. And I don't think that they're necessarily saying it to be helpful. They're just saying it. Oh, you caused this. Oh, what did you do that caused this? Did you eat wrong? Did you think the wrong thing? Did you not have positive thoughts? Did you not have enough faith in God? What did you do to cause this? Those people I just don't even talk to anymore. Conversation over the minute that comes out. Not helpful, really hurtful. And it makes me so angry. I just barely know what to say. Another thing that people say, I think, to uh, make themselves feel better and maybe make you feel better is, oh, just be positive and you'll get through this. Well, the reality is, is that it's a roller coaster. This is an emotional roller coaster. And while you want to be positive and may actually find a place where you can be positive or less terrified, that's not helpful to tell people to be positive or to be happy or to be relieved or to be anything. You are what you are. Your emotions are what they are. We just live in a culture that just doesn't know emotionally how to respond to people and how to be appropriate or helpful. It sometimes just leaves me believing that they don't know how to be decent human beings. And that's one of the things that comes up. Oh, and one of my favorites is God doesn't give you more than you can handle. It's like, you know what, I don't think that God has a microcosm that he controls everybody's life. I don't consider getting cancer or not getting cancer to be divine intervention and a reward or a punishment. But the fact is, is that uh, you do get dealt things in life that are too hard to handle. I am a pediatric ICU nurse by training, and I can tell you I have sat with people through some of the most difficult and painful experiences they will ever go through, which is the loss of their child. I have seen people broken, and I have seen people who didn't handle it, who were given more than they can handle, and they don't recover by no fault of their own. The fact is, is that life gives us things that we can't and shouldn't be expected to handle sometimes. And saying something like this, to me, is such a value judgment. And and what I actually say to people in return, and it's taken me several years to, to get this down, is saying that to them, so if I was a weaker person, God wouldn't have put me through this, doesn't really help. And I'm not bashing anybody who's religious or who believes in God or who who draws on spiritual comfort. I'm just saying that these kind of things, they're not helpful. They're not helpful at all. And it doesn't, it doesn't help build resiliency. It doesn't help build the coping with it. Because yeah, sometimes you get dealt more than you can handle. That's just life. And hopefully we can surround ourselves with people who help us cope and get through these times when we feel like we can't do it ourselves. And last and not least is just any sentence that begins with, why don't you just do whatever, do every chemotherapy drug, do every radiation treatment, do everything, uh, have your breast amputated, do frozen lemons. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what that sentence ends with. Why don't you just is not a helpful thing to say. Now that I've gone through my top 10, I want to tell you that I really hope this to be a conversation. I was thinking about this idea a few nights ago, and I actually just put it out to some people that I know, and it's amazing the response I got, not just in terms of what people were saying, because my thing that I asked was, what is the most insensitive thing that was said to you? 
not only what people said, and believe me, there's a whole lot of things that, that floor me that would come out of anybody's mouth, but how cathartic and, and therapeutic it just seems to be for people to be able to even write these things or talk about them because these are the things we're kind of trained to not think about. Socially, we're trained to be good girls and to be nice, and we're not trained to think about these things, to hold people responsible for their behavior, their bad behavior, and to say that it's not good enough. Um, that is something that I think is something to learn through this process, is how we can take care of ourselves emotionally. Because the fact is, is we're never going to be able to cure people from saying stupid and sensitive things. What we can do is protect ourselves a little bit better. And that's what I want to turn to in terms of uh, tying this together. I have found that going through this process can give you a great deal of clarity. And for me, it gave me emotional clarity. I am a caretaker. I tend to want to smooth things over for people. I tend to swallow a lot of my feelings. I tend to be in relationships where I take care of people in a lot of ways that I don't feel are returned to me. So both of these times, like with my friend the first time around who I told you the story about him going to the store for me. When I think back on my experience there, I can tell you that I got very clear through this process. Things would happen. It could be something as minor as a phone call or returning a message or whatever, but things would happen. And what would go through my head is, this is important and this is not. And it was a very clear line for me. And it's not something I ever had to say to anybody, but I would just be sitting there, you know, thinking about my friend or having my experience. And, and I could just look at him and think, you know, this is not important. It's not important enough for me and my energy to be invested here. That was what was important for me to know because it was exhausting. And I would just be sitting there, you know, with friends and, and it would just be like, I have to go lay down now. I'm tired. I, I don't have the time or energy for this. And I think that's a really important place we need to get to, to heal physically, to heal emotionally. And it's a really hard place to get to if you're somebody who has always put other people first. I heard a story the other day about a woman talking about people coming to see her while she was in the hospital, while she was on drugs and recovering from anesthesia and in pain. Not the time to entertain people. But think about it. When have you been there feeling like you have to stay awake and entertain people and interact with them and you just don't have the emotional or physical energy? And yet maybe you've never in your life been in a place to say no to people. No, I don't have the energy to take care of you right now. No, I don't have time for this. No, I need to take care of myself. That is a really important place to get to, whether you're dealing with this in the acute or the long term. That is a place we have to get to in order to deal with the physical and emotional ramifications of going through this. And yet, I understand this is a place that a lot of women have never been. They've never been in a place to say no. They've never been in a place to put themselves first. They've always been caretakers. It's always been about taking care of other people. And if there is one thing that I think we absolutely could learn from this whole process is how to take care of yourself first, even if that feels selfish, because that's what we're all told. Don't be selfish. Don't be this. Don't be that. Well, there comes a time in your life where you need to be selfish. It is truly about self-care. It is about your life. 
in that same vein, the fact is, is it's not always friends and people that are two and three layers removed from us. Sometimes it's our family and the people that we think we're closest to. Sometimes it's your husband. Uh, Sometimes it's your partner, your intimate other. And um, that can be really tricky to navigate because we know that that the experience of going through this, the pain, the discomfort, the medications we have to fit take all take a toll on our lives. It takes a toll on our emotional life. Uh, it takes a toll on our physical health. It takes a toll on our sex life. And that can be very difficult to navigate with your partner or your husband. It's really tricky. And the truth is, is that it it doesn't always turn out well. Uh, people, even the people that we rely on, like our partners, sometimes don't show up for us. Many times they do, but a lot of times they don't. And I, I only bring this up because it's just something that I just want to give voice to because too often I hear women blaming themselves that they did something or it's their fault or they don't want to burden their partners. They don't want to burden their families. Well, I don't know how you can get past that because having cancer is a burden. It's a burden on you and it changes your relationships. It changes every relationship. I was very fortunate. I have a partner who I, he was actually somebody I was dating at the time. We had only been dating a short time, so there was really no reason for him to stay around or see me through this. And and he just showed up for me in ways that I had never experienced before. And he is now my husband, and he's been there. But it hasn't been without its bumps. One of the biggest arguments we ever had came basically after one of my surgeries, after one of my very extended painful surgeries. And I had been trying to check in with him through the process to see how he was doing and to try to get him to talk about his feelings, but he's a man. He's a typical man, not trained to talk about his feelings and and really wasn't opening up in many ways. And then one night he came in and we got into an argument that even at the time it was happening, I knew it wasn't an argument about what we were arguing about. I knew it was about cancer, but it was also the day after major surgery. So I didn't have the physical ability to, to show up and try to help him through that. That was a really difficult time. It's probably the biggest argument we've ever had. And yet what it did was give some clarity. And the next day when we were able to talk about it, I put it in the context that, um, well, what he said to me is, we don't have fun anymore. We used to have fun. We used to go out. We used to uh, laugh. We used to have good sex. And we don't have that anymore. And I could understand that. But what I felt like I needed to say to him is that as much as I could acknowledge that, and I missed it too. I really missed the the first days when we were dating, and we did. We had a great deal of fun. But in his grief and his anger, he was focusing that grief and anger at me instead of at the the disease of cancer. And and I that's the one thing that I really work with my clients to help them understand is that your relationship that at one time was just the two of you, perhaps if we're talking about, um, it can affect your whole family, but if we're talking about a couple relationship and it becomes a three-way relationship, there's you, there's your partner and there's cancer. And cancer sucks the life out of the room in every way. But it's not it's not your fault that, that that's happening. It's not like you brought that on. But all too often, we can internalize that. And that's the one thing I would really like to 
bring to awareness to really encourage you to take a look at that is how and in what way you may be internalizing your experience of this disease in some way blaming yourself trying to protect the other people in your life from it because you can't the truth is you can't protect yourself from it and you can't protect other people from it and i don't mean that to sound negative but it's the truth cancer is a devastating disease and at some point regardless of what factors have gone into what made us susceptible to getting it we have to practice forgiveness for ourselves it's not our fault. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's just something that we have to survive as well as we can. And what happens in our relationships happens. The truth is, is that I I think it's an opportunity to maybe look at how you have chosen to be in relationships. Have you always taken care of somebody else? Have you put someone's feelings before your own? Have you ever been able to ask for what you needed or what you wanted? Because if that's never happened before cancer, being in the midst of this is not going to give you any magic answers. It can be really difficult to have to ask people for basic things, things that you feel like you should be able to take care of yourself. One of the things I was subject to and I hear in my clients all the time is, oh my God, how fast can I get back to work? Well, believe me, that is, if I were to do it again, hopefully not one of the first things that would come to mind. Uh, There is no time frame. We all have to maybe get a little quieter and tune in to what's going on with us to have the answer to that. That may not resonate with anybody around you because they're not going through it. And that, I think, is something that we all need to remind ourselves that people can love you. They can be there for you or not. But the fact is, you're the one that's going through it. I want to end this by by making some suggestions that, that I hope will help you navigate this. One of the things that I did in in both of my experiences of cancer was allow me to identify people in my life that were really toxic. And I knew for a long time that I was putting up with things that I didn't want to or shouldn't have put up with, but I I didn't end the relationships. And yet, through both diagnoses of cancer, I was able to identify that and get out of long-term toxic relationships. The fact is, is that some people are just not good for you. And for any number of emotional reasons, we stay in relationships that aren't supporting us that, or that are toxic. But this may be a time to end those relationships. By the same token, even if you're in relationships with very loving people, they can't always be there for you in the way you need them to be. I find one of the things that's really helpful is to find a support group, to find a group of other survivors that you can talk to who get you, who understand. That being said, I have gone to groups that were not helpful. They were just basically, you know, talking, bringing up the worst fears. There wasn't anything constructive at the end of the day. I, I've, I've often heard the phrase drunk-a-logs, you know, for people who go to AA meetings, and it just seemed like it was a symptom-a-log, and that there was no resolution at the end, or had someone at a group tell me that if I just worshipped quartz crystals, that would be the cure. I, that, that kind of stuff is not helpful. So if you do find a support group or you lo- are looking for support, still be mindful of whether or not it's helping you or whether or not it's bringing you down. If if you find one that is not supporting you, there's a lot of other resources you may need to keep looking, but I find that to be something that's really helpful. If you do have a partner or a husband, uh, having them get support away from you, having them find 
spouse support groups, having them find friends they can talk to or clergy or find outlets on their own away from you can be really helpful because as much as they love you, there's still some things they're never going to be able to say to you. And I can't emphasize enough to stop taking care of others before yourself. I'm not recommending that you become uh, a self-absorbed narcissist, but uh, the fact is, is that women habitually take care of others, whether it's spouses or friends or coworkers or children or family members. And sometimes what I've found is that the responses that come from family members can be the most hurtful. And I think there's a lot of other dynamics that go on there besides um, just the things you deal with in friends. Um, Sometimes it's just a matter of competition and who's getting the most attention in a family. So once again, being able to uh, say to people, this is not helpful and I'm not having this conversation. And there might be a number of ways for you to say that. I, I often tell people, ask them to stop. The second time, tell them to stop. And the third time, go ballistic and make sure they stop. Sometimes you just need to tell people this is not appropriate and I don't want to hear it. Now, that can be a really hard thing to say if you've never said that. And if you're more concerned about social convention than you are in terms of taking care of yourself, but there's got to be a way to take care of yourself and to stop letting other people's anxiety and fear and ignorance become your problem. Because honestly, if you're in recovery, you don't have the physical or emotional energy to take care of everybody and still recover from this disease. Actually, that was one of the things that my doctor actually had to remind me of is that the effects of stress physically from a physiological standpoint were suppressing my immune system, exacerbating the inflammation and the health problems I was trying to deal with. So that unless I dealt with stress and some of the toxic relationships in my life, and as he put it, the freakishly abnormal stress of your job, there's nothing I can do to help you from a physical standpoint because you've got to be working with me. I was really impressed with his ability to say that, you know, and he was a straight across the board surgeon. I didn't consider him to be one of the uh, alternative practitioners. He was just talking from a very straightforward viewpoint, and I really appreciated that. It's what made him so wonderful in terms of being my doctor at the time to help me get through this. Some other things that I'd like to say is uh, choose your confidants carefully. Don't necessarily tell everybody. Choose who you talk to very carefully and make sure you've got a track record. And sometimes sometimes people aren't being hurtful. They're just clueless. They don't know what to say. And they say things that they've heard or they've read or, you know, they're not being hurtful. They're, they, you know, it's, it's, it's what I would call kind of on the more innocent end. So sometimes tell them how they can help would be really beneficial. You know, as I told some of my friends, I don't need you to come over and process cancer with me, but it would be really nice if you brought over dinner or picked up takeout at the restaurant or came over and watched a funny, goofy movie. Or one of my friends, uh, he would come by on his way to work. He didn't really ever have time to stop and talk, but he'd come home or he'd come to my home and take out the garbage for me because I couldn't go downstairs. Uh, I couldn't walk downstairs when I was paralyzed to take out my garbage. So he'd just come in, bundle up my garbage and take it out for me. Was a wonderful help. We didn't have to process anything. If you have children asking a friend to pick up your kids from school or you know, have your kids over for a sleepover or take them to the park, you know, do very practical down-to-earth things. It doesn't have to be an emotional ordeal every time. And sometimes they don't know to do that. So tell them, tell them what would help you. Tell them, go pick up some groceries for me. 
you know, sometimes people would be thrilled to do anything for you if they just knew what to do. So help them out with that. As I said, look at at, at your uh, way of being in relationships and see if if that's some internal work that you need to do. So that's what I have to say today. I hope this has been helpful. And um, as I have uh, talked about, uh, we all are going through this and no one has any definitive answers. I'd really like this to be a dialogue. I'd really like this to be something that's supportive for you. I really feel like the people who responded to me from my question the other night, I really feel there was a really um, healing aspect just to be able to talk to another survivor who didn't know any of the people that they were talking about in their lives. I don't know any of those people, but I think it was really helpful for people to be able to talk about it, put it down, and just acknowledge their own experience. That's what I'd like this to be. So if this is a conversation that has resonated with you and something that you would like to continue, please feel free to uh, drop into the Facebook group, Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, and continue the discussion. I check that daily, and I would really love to continue this conversation. If this is something that you really feel like you need help and support with and you need a more personalized conversation, please feel free to reach out to me at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. I really want to be someone who helps you with this and perhaps this is something that you would benefit from in a more private conversation. I always offer uh, free initial consults for people to really look at uh, integrative healing and chart a path for themselves and that's something that I'd like to offer to you. You can always sign up for my newsletter where um, I'm talking about a lot of these issues as well as other issues that come up in integrative healing want to remind you that you're not alone. Uh, We're all going through this and the best thing that we can do is to support each other. Thank you so much for joining me today and I hope to hear from you soon. Until our next podcast, take care. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach Deborah at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com or her website, www.MindBodyNutritionRN.com. You can also find us on Facebook under Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. For future episodes, subscribe on iTunes, where you can also leave positive reviews. Until next time.